Hey, everybody. Man, that was so good. So good. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of two years ago, almost about this time, when I pulled our, what at that point was our youth band aside, Matt, Carly, Hannah, Owen, and I looked them all in the eye and I said, you know what, you guys? You guys are no longer the youth band. This was when we were transitioning from Marvin to Ben. Marvin was in the process of leaving. Ben wasn't here yet. I said, you guys are no longer the youth band. You are the band. And man, God has blessed us so much through these guys. So at home, applaud. Applaud in the chat box. Thank you so much to, um, to our students who give up their time to help lead worship here at Crossroads. So good. So good. Thank you, guys. Hey, we're going to get started with the message today with a little bit of movie trivia. You ready? What do the movies of Mad Max, Fury Road, Harry Potter, Goblet of Fire, Star Wars, New Hope, and Toy Story 4 have in common? Thinking? Tick tock, tick tock. Well, I will tell you, they are all the fourth installment in their series of movies. And many people would argue, no, don't, I don't want to hear about New Hope being number four. George Lucas, the guy who wrote it, said it's number four, so it's number four. That's what we're going with. Um, but a lot of people argue that they are also each the best movies in their, in their series. And so where is Tom going now? What is he doing? Why is he talking about fourth movies? Here's the thing. Where we are in the book of Acts, scholars refer to as Paul's fourth missionary journey. Right? He's not out planting churches or anything, but he is absolutely sharing Jesus in whatever situation he's in. And that's why, for me, completely subjectively, I think this is my favorite, what I would call Paul's best missionary journey. Because he's out sharing Jesus no matter what is happening around him, whether there's a riot, whether he's in court, whether he's getting shipwrecked, whether he's whatever is going on, he is still doing his thing, still sharing Jesus. And so I left you guys kind of on a, a cliffhanger last week when I stopped reading in the text. It was just that Paul was about to be flogged. And so we pick up from there. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit for you. Right before he's about to be flogged, Paul looks at the guard with the whip in his hand, the cat of nine tails, and he's like, so are you supposed to flog a Roman citizen? And as you read the text, you can almost see the color drain from the, guy, the guard's face and drop the whip, and he's like, uh, and he runs and he gets his boss and he tells his boss and his boss comes back and is like, um, so we're going to let you go, but we're releasing you on a promise to appear in court, essentially is what he said. And the court is called the Sanhedrin and that's where we're picking up the text. We are in um, Acts, we are in chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. 
there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. All right, so previously, Paul started a riot because he declared that God had ordained that Gentiles were now to be brought in. Not now. I mean, he was reminding people. That was what the plan all along was, that the Gentiles should be brought in to the family of God. This week, he starts a riot because he declares his hope in the resurrection of the dead, which sparks this other brawl. So what is it that we can learn from a, an argument between a bunch of badly behaved religious guys that happened 2,000 years ago. Well, I think if we dive into the what and the who, there are three things that I, I think will come out of that, that my prayer is that it will, it will bolster your hope. If you are in a, in a place right now where you're feeling you are lacking hope, you are ho- feeling hopeless, that it will build hope in you. When we speak of the resurrection, that should immediately, a sense of hope should immediately begin to well up inside of us. And that's the first thing we need to look at, is this idea of resurrection. So um, as we were talking, Gail and I lead a a community group, and our group this past week, um, Mike Talabak reminded us that the the people um, who we're talking about in this situation did not have the Bible as we know it. What they had was Genesis through Malachi. So they had the Old Testament. They had their personal experiences, and they had the letters that Paul started to send around. They weren't collected all up nice and neat, but they had the the Hebrew Bible. You guys, my phone stopped working, so you're going to have to control the slides for me. Um, So real quick, we're going to do like a 20,000-foot overview of of resurrection in the Old Testament up until um, Jesus' time. When we look at the Old Testament, the idea of resurrection, there are, and there's a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of scripture in, in the notes. So I would encourage you guys to go check these out for yourself. But we see a couple of common themes uh, referred to or that come out of the Old Testament discussion of the resurrection. And the, the first one is this. There are general references to resurrection. And in each of those general references, um, the, the message was delivered to people who were suffering. They were in captivity. They were in slavery. They had just lost spouses or wives or were ill or all of those things all at the, all at the same time. And the message that was delivered when, it, when resurrection was discussed, it was bodily, right? It wasn't like a ghost spirit kind of deal, a, a out-of-body deal. It was a bodily resurrection to an existence that was free from all of those things. It was free from sickness. It was free from tears. It was free from even death. Death had been defeated in this resurrection that is being presented to these people. Those are the kind of the general references. There are specific references to resurrection as they tie to the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah. 
And the, the most explicit reference we see to resurrection in the Old Testament is found in, in Daniel chapter 12. It's like verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4. Daniel is having a conversation with the angel Michael. And Michael says to him that on the Lord's day, the last day, when Jesus comes back to make everything right, those who sleep in the dust, that's Old Testament speak for dead, those who sleep in the dust will be raised, will be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to eternal shame and condemnation. So that's coming out of the Old Testament, right? Those are the, the high-level references to, to resurrection, and there's, there's a lot of them. And then Jesus is born, and Jesus starts walking around, and he starts living a resurrection kind of life. He starts, resurrection is bringing dead things to life, right? He starts going to people who were treated like they were dead. He starts going to prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and sinners and people who had been pushed to the sides, and he is bringing them life. He's bringing them life through physical healings. He's bringing them life through emotional healings. He's bringing them life through inviting them into the fold where before they had been excluded. So he's living this resurrection kind of life, and people are taking notice, and it's changing people's lives. Then we see him actually raise somebody more than one person, but highlighted in the person of Lazarus. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in the course of doing that, he looks at Lazarus' sisters and he says, not only am I the means to resurrection, I am the resurrection. Jesus himself is the resurrection. Jesus then is, is murdered, he's dead, and he rises again. So he beats death, he rises again. I'm going really fast. There's a lot of this resurrection stuff I want to cover. The last two things we have, right? Let's, um, guys, if you could put up that timeline. So the period of time that we're looking at right now is in the middle um, 50s. It's circled in red right there. If you look immediately to the left of that, you'll see um, that's Paul's third missionary journey. And in those little boxes, that's when he wrote Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So those letters had been written before this trial happens, right? So they, people have, um, Paul is out there teaching people this line of thinking about resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's called the great resurrection chapter. Paul tells us that there are over 500 people who witnessed Jesus in his resurrected form. He tells us that Jesus' Jesus's resurrection is where we find power for this life. Because if Jesus can beat death, he can beat anything that this life has to offer. Jesus' resurrection is where we find power. to. It, he actually beat death. So when the church word for it is imputed, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we try to live like him through the power of the Holy Spirit, his righteousness, his resurrection, his eternal life is imputed. It's given to us. That's 1 Corinthians 15. There's so much more in there about resurrection. Um, please check it out for yourself. And finally, Paul writes this letter to the Roman church in which he explains how in death, Jesus beat sin. In his resurrection, Jesus beat death. And when we commit ourselves to living with Jesus, for Jesus, like Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit, we gain access to the freedom from sin and the freedom from death that he himself bought and purchased. I need to take a breath. Ready? Are you guys okay? 
we jack in. Um, so that's, that's like, that seems to be like a lot of information to be had about the resurrection for it to create a brawl, right? Wouldn't you think that people would be on board? There's enough for people to grab onto. Um, but as we, uh, as we think about it, we think about the who is involved. These are religious leaders. So we would think even more like, come on, you guys, this should, this should, you guys should be here tracking with this stuff. But we're going to dig a little bit into it. So Paul was sent before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in all of Judaism. It was like the supreme court of, of, the, of Israel. And they decided all the big deals. The only thing they couldn't do was sentence someone to death. The Roman authorities had to, had to approve that. It was a group of 71 men. And this is a group that essentially um, ordered the death of Jesus. This is the group that earlier in Acts ordered the torture of the disciples. This is the same group, interestingly enough, that some I don't know, 15, 20 years earlier, Paul had to go before. This is before Paul, you know, before Jesus knocked Paul off his horse. Paul had to go to these guys and say, hey, I want your permission to go to Damascus and destroy the church there. And they wrote him letters saying, Paul, go for it. Go do your thing. So Paul had to be feeling all kinds of things going into this. And it was in the same room. They met in the same room. Um, going into that room, knowing their history, knowing his personal history with them. And it wasn't this, you know, the same specific people, but it was the same body. So he had all this stuff going on. So the Sanhedrin, 71 people, those 71 people are made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Okay, the Sadducees are their, um, their old money, their aristocracy, they were kind of born into their position. They really like their positions of power and, and influence and, and just the money that comes along with it. And like we read in the passage, they do not believe in the resurrection. The reason they don't believe in the resurrection is they only find the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to be valid. Those are the only books that they recognize as Holy Scripture. So all of the rest of the Old Testament, they, they don't pay attention to. And that's where the vast majority of references to resurrection are. So let's think about the Sadducees here for a second. It, the idea of resurrection would cause an uproar for them. Think about Jesus, right? Jesus, a penniless, homeless, itinerant preacher from Galilee shows up, and these guys order his death. He then rises from the dead, as was prophesied in Scripture that the Sadducees don't recognize as valid, and they're being asked to consider that. They're being asked to basically upend everything that they believe and say, yeah, Paul, you're, we're, we're with you. We're, we're tracking with this idea of, of resurrection. Right? They were, it was um, a really long trip from where they were to where they needed to go to get to, to resurrection. The Pharisees. So the Pharisees were very popular with the people. Right? The Sadducees were um, a majority of the Sanhedrin, but a minority in the whole community. The Pharisees were really popular with the crowd, Ancient historians tell us that there were maybe like 6,000 of them throughout ancient 
ancient Israel. So there was a lot of them um, popular with the crowds, but they, so they believed in what we know as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and they were sticklers for every little detail of that Bible. And not only that, but they layered on rule after law after saying on top of those things. And the idea was that if there if could be crystal clear how to follow that law, then everybody would be, would be right there. However, in doing that, they kind of felt like they cornered the market on truth. And they, um, many of them developed this sense of pride, self-righteousness, and they also became hypocritical because they would heap, you know, Jesus called it, they heap these burdens on people's shoulders, and then they're not willing, they're not willing, they're not able themselves to carry that burden. So while the Pharisees were, um, you know, they were more closely theologically aligned with Jesus, with Paul, Paul was a Pharisee, they, they still had this, this roadblock in that they wanted to be seen as right, and Jesus kept showing up and calling them out for their, you know, those things that I said, their pride and their hypocrisy and, and that stuff. So Sadducees were really far away, had a really long trip to get to believing in resurrection. The Pharisees were a little bit closer, but they still had to let go of that which they were centering their, their lives around. So now, as we move on, right, we got the what, we got resurrection, we got the who, we have the Sadducees, we have the Pharisees, and we have Paul. Three things I want to suggest to you that we can take from this interaction, this brawl that took place over the idea of resurrection. The first one is, is this, is the idea of moving beyond self-doubt. And this is something I've been returning to throughout the book of Acts. Paul, Peter, Priscilla, Lydia, these people did extraordinary things, but they were merely ordinary people, right? Paul was just being Paul. Paul used the gifts and the knowledge that he had. He had a great knowledge of scripture. He had um, what I would call a pretty well-developed sense of self-awareness, and he also had a pretty good understanding of um, of people in general. And so he took those things and he used them in the situation that he was in for Jesus, to share Jesus, to testify to Jesus in, in Jerusalem. Now, Paul worked hard to learn all that he knew about, about Scripture. And all of us have some level of a knowledge of Scripture, but we can all grow in that knowledge. We can all put in effort. You guys, we have unprecedented historical access to Bibles, translations, versions, commentaries, study guides, the greatest preaching in the world we literally have in, in our pockets. There's, we have no excuse for not taking the initiative to develop our understanding of, of Scripture. And when it comes to understanding ourselves, like Paul had a good self-understanding um, from his own background. I'm sure, knowing Paul as a Pharisee, he probably had more than one argument with the Sadducee about whether the resurrection was, was real or not, right? So he took that knowledge that he had of his self-awareness, his past experiences before he came to know Jesus, and he didn't let that hold him back. Instead, it was an engine that propelled him forward, 
in his faith with Jesus and in sharing Jesus with, with other people. And then he took his knowledge of people. He, he knew, right? I, he, he knew what was going to happen when he tossed that resurrection grenade into the Sanhedrin, right? He knew that, that they were going to get all upset and start going at each other. He knew that people like to be right. He knew that people like to protect what makes them privileged, what makes them special. And so he used that as he should in that, in that situation. So there are practical things that we can do, practical skills we can develop. We can develop our sense of Scripture, our knowledge of Scripture, our sense of self-awareness, our understanding of people. We can take practical steps to develop those things. There's also, we also have um, supernatural help. We have divine help. And there's this really, like it's, it's, it's uncanny. I mean, I, I shouldn't, none of us should be surprised, but Jesus in the gospels, he's talking to his followers. This is probably 25 years prior to when this stuff is happening. He's talking to his followers. Um, guys, could we go to that next, the scripture slide? And he tells them this. He says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, sounds a lot like the Sanhedrin, right? Do not worry how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. You guys, we have divine help. Jesus promised it to his followers. When we are put on the spot, when we show up for Jesus, Jesus is going to show up for us. So my question, I have some questions for you, right? Do you know that the Holy Spirit resides in you? The God of the universe resides in you, and he is in you to help you know the mind of Christ so that you can act and speak and think on your feet when you need to. With that knowledge, right, do you know what the Holy Spirit sounds like? Can you tell when the Holy Spirit is impressing something upon you? Do you know how the Holy Spirit speaks to you, like it gives you that, that little nudge? Some people get sweaty palms. Some people, they're, they're heart racers. They get short breath. Other people, it's the opposite. They just kind of get this sense of clarity and peace. Are you familiar with how the Holy Spirit communicates with you? And the, the beautiful thing about this is that God provides these guardrails. You remember when you used to bowl when you were little and they would put those things up so you wouldn't get a gutter ball every single time? We have those guardrails in Scripture and in our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we feel the Holy Spirit impressing something upon us, we have Scripture. If it agrees with Scripture, eh, pretty good chance that's the Holy Spirit. If it disagrees, you might want to go back and rethink that. If you're developing your knowledge of Scripture, if it's an area where you're unclear about, you're unsure, you go to your brothers and sisters, maybe somebody further down the road of faith with you, and you run it by them. Scripture lines up, the input from other people line up, you get, conf you get confirmation of what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Right? We can find hope as we develop practical skills to just be ourselves in any situation that we find ourselves in. We can have hope because we see Jesus' promises and we see how it plays out for the um, examples in Scripture of divine help. When we show up for Jesus, he shows up for us. And the last thing I want to talk about is this idea of what 
we center our lives upon. Right? So as we think about the Sadducees, they centered their lives around self-preservation. The Pharisees centered their lives around being right, or at least being perceived to be right. Paul centered his life around Jesus, around knowing him, around loving him, around worshiping him, around sharing him, and around spending an eternity with him. So what is it that's at the center of your life? What behaviors, actions, habits have been created as a result of what's at the center of your life? Right? We think about the Sadducees and the habits of self-preservation that they developed. That mindset, that keeping self-preservation at the center leads us to be at odds with everyone. Everyone is, is our enemy. The Pharisees, it was all about being right. And we already, I kind of listed some of those pitfalls already, right? That led to pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And you know what those things lead to? Loneliness. Nobody wants to be around somebody like that. Living a Jesus-centered life is not... Um, it's not easy. It's not a bed of roses, as Paul keeps demonstrating over and over and over again. However, it's what you and I were created for. It's the, the way of life that provides meaning. It provides purpose. It provides joy. It provides hope. It provides companionship for the journey in the family of God. This Jesus-centered life is based upon the belief in him dying for the forgiveness of sins. It's built upon the belief that in his resurrection, death has been defeated. You guys, could you go to the next slide for me? When, um, when we put our hope in the resurrection, when we live like people who trust in the resurrection of the dead, we bring life to those around us. We're, we're freed from sin and death. We're freed from the, um, from the traps of, of self-preservation. We're freed from the traps of, of having to be right. The resurrection of Jesus is about a relationship between you and Jesus. It's not, um, it's, it's not a religious club to beat people into submission with. It's a relationship. It's not a set of rules to lord over those who can't follow them. It's a relationship. Our hope in the resurrection is based upon a relationship. That relationship is because Jesus wants to be with you. He desires to be with you. He wants to forgive everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. The resurrection says that Jesus wants to spend eternity with you and with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so, so much for the gift of your life, your death, and your resurrection. God, for those who are here today, and, um, and maybe they've never thought about 
putting you at the center of their lives. God, for those of us in that position, would you forgive us, God? Would you, um, would you have mercy upon us? God, would you welcome us into your family? God, for those who, um, who have you in their, in their lives but kind of maybe keep, keep you relegated to the sidelines, God, would you, um, would you help us in our unbelief? God, we believe that you're there. Would you give us the belief to help you move into the center? God, we thank you so much for the gift of, of your resurrection. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you for how you forgive us. We thank you for the hope that we can find in you. In Jesus' name, amen.